Man in the Window contains depictions of sexual violence and is not suitable for everyone. Please be advised. The small courtroom on the first floor of the Sacramento County Jail is at capacity. The benches are filled almost entirely with women when a thin, frail man shuffles in, shackled and under heavy guard. Ladies and gentlemen, please come to order. Department 61 is now in session. The 73-year-old former police officer is accused as being California's most prolific serial killer and rapist. The Golden State Killer. After 16 months in jail, Joseph James D'Angelo seems unsteady. He weighed a beefy 205 pounds at arrest. But by this August hearing, he is rail thin. His ears protrude from his bald skull and his shoulder blades jut beneath his orange jumpsuit. The hearing lasts barely a minute. The case is being delayed again, now until early 2020. The women on the benches stare as D'Angelo shuffles out, and one, a neatly dressed blonde, curses him. Bastard, she says. I hope you rot in hell. Take a short recess. Go ahead and... uh... Another woman chuckles. He looks horrible. Is that some solace? It is. Afterward, about a dozen of the women head to the home of Carol Daly, the detective who handled their rape reports four decades ago. This post-court meal has become something of a ritual. They nibble on watermelon and debate whether D'Angelo will live to see trial. Time's taking its toll on the case as well. Key detectives are struggling with health problems. Gone are the days when the anonymous victims of the East Area Rapist identified themselves to one another by their place in the sequence of attacks. I'm number one, and so forth. Daly calls everyone into the sunroom. I believe, is everybody here? Who's missing, have long been missing, are the men. Not one living male victim is in the room, nor represented by the charges in court. Six men were among the 13 murdered, but police reports for some 50 other beatings and home invasions detail another 29 male victims, men who were beaten, shot at, or tortured and threatened with death while their loved ones were being raped. Some were even stalked. Whatever role the criminal justice system and society handed them, these men have been elusive from day one. A lot of them, their option was they don't want to talk about it. Daly once tried organizing a men's support group. It's like it never happened, and um, just forget it and get on. And no one showed up. I don't even know where they are. Yeah, they have disappeared. Yeah. Until the morning when I'm wakened by an early call. The voice on the other end of the line is intense, amplified by anger. 
The man gives his name, but I can't place it. So he cuts through the fog with a familiar shorthand. He says, I'm number 24. From the Los Angeles Times and Wondery, I'm Paige St. John, and this is Man in the Window. You're listening to a special bonus episode, The Missing. As of tonight, it has now been 44 days since the last reported attack by the East Area Rapist. It's the summer of 1977. The East Area Rapist has been attacking couples in the Sacramento suburbs, threatening the men with death and raping the women. Almost two dozen assaults, and police are clueless. You struck on the average once every two weeks, sometimes every two days, sometimes a week apart. And then, inexplicably, the Sacramento rapes stop. Well, some detectives are wondering, perhaps secretly hoping against hope, that maybe the heat has gotten too much from him, both from the police and from an aroused citizenry. But Victor Hayes doesn't let up his guard. He's 21, a young, strong man in his prime. He has long, thick black hair and a mustache that make him look like a rock and roll band member. In the garage of his duplex, is a souped-up black Cheville, and in the living room, a customized 69 Triumph motorcycle. He has a beautiful girlfriend with whom he is in love. I'm just a guy. I'm all-American. I just, you know, I like good-looking horses. I like good-looking women. I like good-looking bikes. I like good-looking cars. I'm American. And as he would put it, Victor is determined to protect what's his. He keeps a loaded shotgun with an arm's reach leaning against the wall by his headboard, a loaded handgun underneath his mattress beneath his head. He sleeps on the outside of the bed because, as he says, I'm the man. It's now the fall of 1977. On the night of September 29th, Victor checks on his young pit bull in the backyard. He locks the sliding glass door and goes to bed. It's been an emotional night, an argument with his girlfriend, and then reconciliation. His 17-year-old girlfriend soon follows him to bed. Victor asks her if she remembered to brace the back door. I asked, did you put the two-by-four in the sliding glass door? And she said yes. But in fact, she didn't drop the board. I was woken by the sense of somebody coming through the door into the bedroom. He was probably two steps through the doorway into the bedroom, and he stopped at about four steps, you know, shining a flashlight, holding his, you know, flashlight up the top over his ear like law enforcement holds a flashlight. And what did he say? Don't move or I'll shoot your fucking ass. Do as I say. The man has a gun. 
Victor has no choice but to obey the intruder in the mask. He had the drop on me. Victor does what he's told, even though he knows that just inches from his head is his own gun. The handgun was in between the box springs and the mattress, and that's the mistake. It should have been under the covers. Because if it was under the covers, there would have been gunplay. And, you know, part of the thing that I struggle with in my manhood and my ego and stuff is if I would have heard him coming through the sliding glass door into the house or whatever, there would have been gunplay. So, you know, I, I missed it by that much. Coulda, woulda, shoulda, you know. The guy grooved me a fastball. That's kind of the way that I look at it in baseball terminology. Victor still sees his form clearly. The dark ski mask, the leather jacket, the strings he pulls from his pocket to bind them, the dark work slacks, and what looks to him like a service revolver. I see it every day. Every day I see it. Every day for 42 and a half years. I could see it right now. The intruder binds his hands and ankles and then puts a salt and pepper shaker on a plate on his back. Then he drags Victor's girlfriend to the living room and rapes her. Victor remains face down on the bed, frozen so as not to topple the salt and pepper shaker. Twice in the next half hour, the rapist returns to taunt Victor. He came up to walked up to me and put the gun to the side of my head about, you know, four or five inches away and pulled the hammer back and I could hear the cylinder lock and he said, I'm going to party with Sharon. And right then and there, I knew that that motherfucker was watching me and shit because that's my mom's name. The rapist is interrupted when friends swing by the duplex and pound on Victor's door. They leave, but it's enough to frighten off the attacker who slips out through the backyard. Victor waits, then slides off the bed and finds a pocket knife in his jeans to cut the bindings on his ankles and wrists. He pulls out the gun from under his mattress. He can't find the shotgun. As I come down the hall, the first thing I notice is, is my pie from the refrigerator that I'd bought the night before when I went grocery shopping. The police report says it's an apple pie. And it was a lemon meringue pie. And the rapist has eaten half of it and set the tin where Victor is sure to see it. And it's right on the seat of my bike. This is, this is the first thing I see. So I got that, that. That was intended. That was a message as far as I'm concerned. And I saw it loud and clear. And the message was, hey, I note your stuff. I see your shit. Uh, you know, I see it. And um, I recognize it, I acknowledge it, uh, but I dominate you. In the living room, Victor finds his girlfriend bound and on the floor. And I asked her if she was okay, and she said yes. And I said, I can't get you yet. He has to make sure the rapist is gone. Victor sweeps the duplex and then the yard. The night is strangely quiet. Not even Santos, his pit bull, barks. I couldn't hear no cars or no nothing or no nothing. And at that point, the gravity the, the, the gravity of what just happened just kind of hit me. And at the top of my lungs, as loud as I could yell, I yelled, fuck. Victor fires his gun into the air. 
He hopes the rapist is close enough to hear. So then I had then I went back in the house and I had to comfort untie her and comfort her and console her and it was pretty brutal. And we just kind of hugged each other and she was crying. He reaches for the phone to call the police, but the line has been cut. So he bangs on the door of the duplex next door. It takes about five minutes before they open up, and then another few minutes before police arrive. When they do show up, the red and blue lights are off, making as little a public scene as possible. A female detective takes Victor's girlfriend to the hospital, while a male detective pulls Victor into his car, asks him a few questions, and offers him a cigarette. Victor doesn't smoke, but he takes the cigarette. And when he returns to his duplex, he finds two crime scene technicians in the kitchen, dusting for fingerprints. They're laughing. Fucking laughing. He thinks, are they laughing at me? And that was pretty much it for me. Victor confronts the technicians, and he demands to know, what do they think is so funny? And he shuts down. He never tells the detectives about the threat against his mother. And detectives never ask him more questions, that day or any other. The investigative report barely mentions him, and much of what it does state is wrong. That Victor doesn't own a phone, that he doesn't know the address of where he works. Police even get the make of his car wrong. The sheriff's statement published in the paper three days later continues the errors, falsely stating that the rapist walked in through an unlocked door. In another hour, the police are gone. The duplex is a wreck, the surfaces of everything coated in black fingerprint dust. Victor is a young man who suddenly feels terribly alone in the world. When a thought enters his head, Oh my God. He's going to come back. And then I kind of got happy. And I was thinking, please do come back. Oh, my God, am I going to get another chance? He picks up his shotgun and he loads it. He retrieves the handgun from underneath his mattress. He unlocks the back door, turns off the light, and Victor crouches in the dark kitchen between the countertop and the wall. I laughed and I cried. Well, I cried first. I laughed and I prayed real hard, real hard. Come back, come back. The dawn finds him there. And in the new light, he realizes the rapist isn't coming back. Now, Victor decides, his next duty is to go to his girlfriend's mother and apologize to her for what has happened. Bob Hardwick knows the moment he wakes to a blinding light in his face who the masked man in his bedroom is. He's heard for more than a year from his sister in Sacramento about the rapist terrorizing couples in her suburbs. And now, the attacker is in Stockton, his second foray into that town south, and in Hardwick's home. The 31st attack 
in March 1978, is like most of the rest. Bob, a 29-year-old divorce lawyer, and his lover, Gay, a 24-year-old real estate marketer, are bound and then separated. Gay is raped repeatedly. I remember him saying, don't tell me you want to die. Don't tell me you want to die. And then it, and I was like silent because then it morphed into tell me you want to die. And I was like, I, I can't answer. This is a trick question. Bob has a gun held to his head. He hears the trigger pull back and the rapist tells Bob, one move, one flinch, I'll blow your head off. This guy would kill you in a heartbeat. I had no doubt. I had no doubt. I'm tickled to death we both survived the attack, and you know we could be snuffed out just like that. Didn't even think in my mind to attempt to do anything because I felt that we'd both be dead. After he leaves, and the police come, take the reports and dust for prints, Bob and Gay hold hands. We decided to face what came together. And the first thing was, let's go and talk to your parents. In the months that follow, Bob and Gay decide to get married. The unresolved assault does not make their marriage easy. Stockton police seem to lose interest in the case quickly, and they never come back to it to question Bob and Gay about who they know, how their lives might have intersected with those of the other victims. The attack has kept a secret from most of their friends and associates. They wouldn't believe it anyway. And it becomes the low flame beneath their kettle of stress, threatening to boil over. Gay struggles with her high-pressure job in real estate, and then motherhood, and a miscarriage. Her doctor tells her she has PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Gay quits her career for the life of a kindergarten teacher. But Bob, a respected lawyer practicing in a small town, refuses to be cast as a victim. I wasn't going to let this guy define my life. But things do change. They buy a gun. You know, this is when you're all, you know, you're victimized. And Gay sees other signs of change as a result of the trauma that they've endured. Growing up in Kentucky, Bob had been a hothead. He was smaller than the other boys, and he fought to stand up for himself. But he put a lid on his temper when he got his law license. A good lawyer must have control. And now, that control slips. Some sleazy scumbag kids went down the street, and I think they took a leak in the corner, and I got all pissed off. It's on a Saturday afternoon. So I brought the gun in, and I... Uh, they took off, and I shot at him. I shot at the, at the tire. And I'm thinking after I did that, I said, sheesh, what if they have a gun? Uh, they're going to come back, and I'm going to have to freaking kill these guys now. You know, because I got to thinking about what I did. I'd lost them. And I was just praying to God they don't come back so I, don't, so I don't have to kill them, you know. Gay is on the phone with the sheriff, and a deputy comes out not to arrest Bob, but to help them chase down the kids. They find the hubcap that Bob shot off the car, 
the officer also finds a hole in the windshield. And I, and I obviously didn't shoot the windshield. He asked me, well, did you shoot that the hole in the windshield there? <laughs> oh, they already had a hole in their windshield. They they were that, it was that kind of, you know, low life. The kids move out of the neighborhood, and for the most part, the conflict is over. Except for then that tomato incident. I think that was the last thing, but that was the last incident. Yeah. Tell me about the tomato incident. I sent him to the store to get the tomato. It was the store right around the corner. Supermarket. And um, kid got in his face. And, well, you tell. Yeah, uh, kid was getting my face. That's probably one of the kids I pulled out of the car. Sometime, or had you know, gone after sometime when they were turning up my yard. He was in my face, and uh, I didn't know what he was going to do, so I just smacked him. <laughs> and then I went outside, and there was another kid. And I grabbed that kid and threw him through the, um, that, through the glass at Marotta Pharmacy. Didn't break the glass. Didn't break glass. It just went like that because the pharmacist called her. The pharmacist called me and said, hey, is Bob Holmes? Everything okay over there? And I go, why? What's going on? Mike, what's going on? And he said, oh, well, Bob just threw some kid into my plate glass window. <laughs> and I, I was like, dang it. All I wanted was a tomato. These eruptions of anger aren't confined to neighborhood spats. Bob's in family court mediation one day, stuck in a small room with two quarreling, divorcing parents battling over custody of their child. Bob's client is the mother. The husband was a real jerky guy. He just, you know, just couldn't control himself. And uh, he called my client a liar, me a liar. I just jumped across the table and pin the guy against the wall. Bob seeks an outlet for the stress building up inside by throwing himself into constant physical activity. Downhill skiing, softball leagues, golf. You get all that aggression out in sports. But that means Gay is increasingly alone. Four years after the attack, she's had enough, and she moves out. We got some counseling that was a joke. And the counselor was, <laughs> she wasn't helpful at all. Because the counselor tells the unhappy couple to divorce. Bob and Gay instead go out to dinner, and they decide to stay together. We're not quitters. We're better than this. What, you know, why can't we work this out? Part of his argument to convince me as well was that he was in divorce work. And he he said, you know, I see this, I see it all the time. Someone comes in and gets a divorce and they take the same problems that they were experiencing to their next relationship. The attack becomes a sort of unmentioned third rail in their lives, a threat best left alone. But I thought we were pretty good, you know, I mean, she still would have these problems with not wanting to go anywhere alone, but... It was getting better over the years, but then when this got all resurrected when she was helping Paul. Paul Holes. After 30 years of police silence, the investigator from Contra Costa County calls Bob out of the blue one day to say he's digging into the cold case. I didn't even tell Gay for a couple of days because I was trying to decide. It was, it was, it was more like a month and a half. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it was. <laughs> <laughs> 
But anyway, well, eventually I told her he called. Even then, Bob seeks to keep a distance from the attack. And he never asked Gay any details of what the rapist did to her. I just didn't even want to know, because I know what it was, it wasn't good. I didn't find out what went on until I read the report online after he was caught. So I had no idea. All those years? All those years. Gay, sitting next to Bob on the couch, is visibly surprised. I didn't know he read the report, finally. Yeah, I finally read it. The report brings back all the anger he tried to leave behind. Well, I got pissed off, but, you know, but uh, it was as bad as I thought it could be. You know, it wasn't just a rape, you know, she was tormented. The day that Joseph D'Angelo was arrested, a television reporter shows up at Bob and Gay's door. Decades of anonymity are on the line. And we were in shock. But at the same time, I think in that moment, um, I was ready to just say, you know, I'm tired of this just being uh, part of who I am that nobody knows about and that I can own it. I didn't do anything wrong. And Bob? If it were just him, he'd keep the attack locked away, unseen and unspoken. But he agrees to support Gay. She wants to know why there are no criminal charges in their case. San Joaquin County, where their attacks took place, is one of the five counties which have not filed charges against Joseph D'Angelo for the rapes in their jurisdictions. The San Joaquin District Attorney's Office declines to explain why. But Bob and Gay say that the chief deputy prosecutor told them that their case lacks what she called legal nexus. You know, when I hear a word like that, I, I feel like, okay, now we're pulling, you know, the professional jargon out of our back pocket to baffle the, the person who's asking the question. And I knew that was bullshit. Bob could understand it if the county said, we don't have enough evidence, or we don't have the money. I wasn't buying this legal nexus crap. In fact, except for the murders, none of the charges against D'Angelo relate to what happened to men during the home invasions. It echoes the way men are treated throughout the case, handed diminished roles with damaging consequences. There's even a police report from the time in which the man who's bound and tortured is not even referred to as a victim, but as a witness. Both Bob and Victor say police barely questioned them, then or even now. But even then, I didn't think about that. I thought, well, I was the same way as all anybody that meant that Gay was the you know real the real victim. I didn't feel like I was a victim per se. I probably I felt bad that I couldn't do anything about it. Bob still wrestles with the idea that maybe he could have, should have, done something more. You know what I mean? So, I mean, you could, you know, you could be a hero, but you can be a dead hero. He wasn't, hopefully wasn't holding against me. And I know she would, she wasn't. So, she understood. 
Yet Bob has to deal with the friend who asks the famously athletic lawyer, even now playing a hundred softball games a year, if he couldn't have bested the rapist. Yeah, you're 70 years old. You're playing here softball with 40-year-olds. You couldn't, you know, like, you couldn't do something else. Victor Hayes faces some of the same painful questions. His father first implies something about his son's lifestyle invited the attack. Then he asks Victor to tell his story in detail to co-workers from the state youth authority. All they were interested in was they, they wanted, you know, they wanted the bloody details, you know, about how it got tied up and this and that. All the things that were ego deflating to me. They didn't want to ask me grander picture things. They wanted the blood and guts gory detail. Could you hear your girlfriend while she was being raped? Was he making any? So I got fucking pissed off. And, and, and the reason was is because, you know, I'm 21 years old. And, and this guy just, like, he just counted coup on me. And now you guys want me to sit here and to talk, and my ego, my, my male, and, you know, they, they didn't say any words of comfort or anything or anything. Victor and his girlfriend eventually break up. He never married, and today lives alone. He works in the Northern California forests, supplying firewood, fishing, and hunting. The trophies of the big bucks he's killed are mounted on the cabin walls. There is evidence that the East Area Rapist went out of his way to assault the masculinity of his male victims. Police reports consistently note the East Area Rapist's heightened aggression toward men, the frequency with which he reminded those men of their powerlessness how he taunted them into trying to make a move against him. Detectives say that after the rape, he followed one male assault victim to his job site, a road project, and on the man's work machine, left the same rope used to bind his wife. Despite all of that and more, the idea that the men themselves are victims has been difficult for some to accept. California passed a law that makes victims of the East Area Rapist eligible for state compensation, primarily reimbursement for counseling. But as of this recording, only two of the male victims eligible have applied for the funds, though the deadline is December. Victor was unaware the fund even existed. Gay is pressing Bob to file, but he's reluctant. I want to be clear on the record <laughs> I'll go to counseling with you. I'm not going to file an application, but if you need me to go to counseling, I'll go to counseling with you. He doesn't see the need for himself. No, I went through trauma, I'm sure. I'm, still, I'm probably still going through trauma, but I'm not going to let it affect me. Yes. I kind of feel that, even though I don't like talking about it, I think it needs to be talked about because then people become aware and then maybe they will you know, take into consideration all these things you're talking about how men are affected, how relationships are affected, then maybe some people then will survive this like he and I. Yeah. Standing outside their door after the interview, Bob gathers Gay into a bear hug. Should have dumped you 20 years ago. 
this season. <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the shoe, you know, the gum on the shoe thing. You just can't shake it. <laughs> they beam at one another. Obviously, no one is going anywhere. A few hours later, Gay sends me a long text message. You could see that to this day, he's still concerned about what old relatives or classmates in Kentucky might think about him. Yet he knows, objectively, that it shouldn't matter. The idea that he failed in some way is crazy. There was absolutely no way to win. No opening at all. And Bob has taken care of me and us every day for over 40 years. That surely isn't any kind of failure. I wish people could just really grasp that. But what if you're a male victim who wants to be seen? Victor has shown up in court, the only male victim to do so. But when he did, the county advocate refused to let him in with the women until one of the female victims vouched for him. And nobody from the district attorney's office calls Victor when prosecutors announce that they will press kidnapping charges in connection with the assault on Victor's girlfriend. He has to learn that from the reporter who calls for his reaction. It's like I don't exist. The case eats away at him. He's convinced that his attack, his pain, is unacknowledged. I'm telling people, what about the other crimes he committed? You know, he threatened to kill me. He's, he, he, he used his gun. I think he's a cop. He cut my phone line. Victor's become fixated on whether Joseph D'Angelo was on duty as a cop the night he was attacked, and whether the city of Auburn, where D'Angelo worked, is somehow negligent. He wants compensation. A lawyer tells him there's little chance of payment. And I came to the realization after this happened, after, you know, too long and thought about it for all these years, there's there's something wrong generally, but I think that there's something specifically more wrong with my case. And I think that that very well may be that he was working when he came to my house. And I think that at some point, somebody knew it. Auburn city officials cite state confidentiality laws in refusing to release D'Angelo's personnel file. And D'Angelo's former police chief repeats his belief it would have been impossible for an officer to slip away from the small town's two-man patrol duty without notice. So Victor twists in the wind. Though D'Angelo was arrested in April 2018, there has not yet been a preliminary hearing and no plea. Prosecutors have said the case could take years to go to trial. Victor's afraid D'Angelo will die before then. I hear this, well, what do you care, man? He's in jail and he's never... No, I want my day in court. He's afraid prosecutors have little interest in knowing if an active-duty police officer ran amok. He's afraid he'll never be heard. From the Los Angeles Times and Wondery... This is part eight of Man in the Window. The individual charged with murder and kidnapping in this case, Joseph D'Angelo, has not yet been tried or entered a plea. He and his lawyers declined to comment. Our gratitude goes to the women and men willing to tell their stories 
and to the Center for Sacramento History for access to its archives. The original score for Man in the Window is now available on Spotify. You can find it by searching Allison Layton Brown or simply by clicking on the link in the episode notes. Man in the Window was written and reported by me, Paige St. John. Senior producer is Karen Lowe. Associate producers are Casey Georgie and Desil Kibbe. Original music is by Allison Layton Brown. And music coordinator is Marcelino Villalpando. Our editors at the Los Angeles Times are Steve Clow and Shelby Grad. Executive produced by George Lavender, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondery. Wondery.